I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dr. Pesach Lichtenberg, the former head of the Department of Psychiatry at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the director of a closed psychiatric hospital ward for 25 years before being fired for implementing ideas that violated mainstream psychiatric principles. He went on to become the founder and professional director of Soteria Israel, a nonprofit organization that provides a home-like alternative to psychiatric hospitalization for recovery from acute psychosis. Dr. Lichtenberg, Pesach, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about your intriguing story of how and why you challenged psychiatric orthodoxy in Israel, which I imagine is not so different than uh, psychiatric orthodoxy here in the United States. And you know, you're American, so and I think your training was in was in New York, so you you know what the differences are, if if any. And and where and when did you learn about the alternative vision for helping people navigate their way through psychosis back to sanity? So your background, you know, and also from where and to and, and how did you get to where you are now? I have a background in philosophy. I have an MA in philosophy from Columbia University. And it taught me to uh, not take anything for granted that I learned to always try to examine what I'm being told and whether it's true or not. And I also was very involved in issues of mind and body and the connection between them. Then I became a psychiatrist and I adhered to what was very much the mainstream. I mean, I entered psychiatry in the mid-1980s, and that was a very heady time to become a psychiatrist. Uh, There was a lot of optimism in the field. Medication was considered to be the first line for many or most serious psychiatric problems. I still remember meeting old-timers in the psychiatric ward with a twinkle in their eye would describe what it was like when the first drops of chlorpromazine entered the hospital ward and they finally had a pharmacological way of sedating people who for years had been in terrible condition and there was residual excitement from those findings. In the mid-1980s we were very optimistic about the advances which we expected would happen in the field of psychiatry in the near future. We knew that the brain sciences were about to explode. We knew that it was just a matter of time till we decipher the whole human genome. At the time, we didn't even know how many genes we had. And, and we anticipated that we'd come to the situation, which indeed we've come to, where for a few dollars, you can, you can actually detail all the person's genes. With these findings, we were certain that there would be huge advances in the field of psychiatry. And we didn't even have to call ourselves biological psychiatrists because that seemed to be the only legitimate kind of psychiatry. I was very eager to see what would happen next gen, the highly anticipated next generation of psychiatric medication, which indeed came along in the 1990s, starting with Prozac as antidepressants, and then uh, the second generation antipsychotics such as, well, we started with the risperidone and then olanzapine and all of those medications, which today are most common medications used in treating psychosis. And when I'm sometimes, when I'm often critical of what's happened, of the gains or lack thereof in, in biological psychiatry, much of it is sort of unrequited love because I came expecting so much of what might happen in the field and the advances we might make 
And very little of that has actually been realized. I mean, uh, the fact is that the medications which we use today are not better than the medications we use in the 1950s and 1960s. There's a broader range of side effects from which we can choose, but they're not more effective. And um, we have trouble showing that the long-term results of giving these medications bring any kind of healing to the people receiving them. There's too much evidence that sometimes the opposite may be true. And there was a sense that something is wrong with what's going on in the field and that we're not at all seeing the gains that we hope to see. Even as a resident, I, I remember I, I read a book written by Joseph Burke, who had been with R.D. Lang at Kingsley Hall in the 1960s, and he wrote it together with Mary Barnes. And I remember reading that and, and being transfixed and horrified by the things that were happening there. I, I think that it was the point when, when Joseph Burke describes how his patient had smeared the walls with feces and he just ran out of there. I think that was a point when I stopped reading. I said, I, I, can't, I can't handle this. Let me go back to uh, the, the easier sort of psychiatry. Uh, and that's what I did for years. And I did research, uh, genetic research, and I did uh, some pharmacological research. But as time went on, I, I felt increasing dissatisfaction with what we were doing. I was fascinated by people who were psychotic. Uh, I was trying to understand what was happening there. And my frustration grew from year to year that you could have somebody telling this amazing tale of redemption, of persecution, of these fantastic things, and sometimes terrible things happening. And then what we would do in the staff meetings, decide which medication and how many milligrams. And it just seemed not... Uh, sufficiently respectful of the complexity of what these people were saying. And I began thinking about whether we were not missing the point in helping these people and trying to help these people. So certainly over the years that the uh, level of humanity of people who are working in the wards, I think it improved. I mean, there were people who cared, most of the people on my staff, I, I was happy that they were there. So it wasn't a problem of the people working in the field. It was more of a structural problem. You could have 40 or 50 people in the ward, and during the night you'd have three people taking care of them. This meant that uh, there wasn't really any chance to, to be able to talk. You know, the good patient was the quiet one, the docile one, the one who doesn't cause any problems. And, and they learned this. Uh, uh, the patients themselves in the wards understood that they have to act in a certain way in order to get out of there. And I remember someone getting up in a messianic frenzy and saying, I'm going to save Israel, I'm going to save the world. And the person next to him, who shared similar beliefs about himself, said, quiet down, otherwise you're going to get put into an isolation room. The, the very idea that we can just put people in a ward and observe them, it's sort of a throwback to an earlier time when Kreplin was doing some very careful observational work of, with people 
were in asylums uh, in Europe in, in, in the 19th century. And there had been so many advances in the world of science at the time by the observer removing himself from the experiment and just seeing what was happening. And Kremlin, in true scientific fashion of the time, tried to observe what the people were doing, how they were behaving, and in doing so, to try to amass the symptoms without any sense that he might actually have a sort of influence upon what the people were saying. These were utterances which could be objectively understood, which is a great approach if you're examining a petri dish and trying to understand the, the behavior of bacteria, but it has its shortcomings when you're trying to understand people. Now, if the point of psychiatry is to amass a list of symptoms or, or to work on a mentally internalized checklist of symptoms when you're doing a psychiatric examination, then it's okay to have people in a sterile environment uh, being observed. And you can imagine that the context of where they are located doesn't affect their behavior or what you find in your psychiatric examination in any way, which is, of course, a fallacy. A fallacy which in many ways reached an epitome in the approach of the DSM-3 and onwards when psychiatric disorders became a list of symptoms removed from context. You can have these very large incohate baskets of diagnoses which, which, which were really not coherent, but, but once we're just looking at people's symptoms and observing them in that way disconnected from their environment from their past, then that's a kind of distortion which is produced. Maybe one way to put all this is that the new paradigm, the biological paradigm, which was not entirely new because you know Kreplin, what over a hundred years ago, was saying the same thing, that you can look upon mental illness and aberrant behavior as not having intrinsic meaning, that there's something going wrong in the brain and that you have to fix that. And there, there are symptoms of the brain going haywire or going off, but the content is not to be taken seriously, whether it's the content of psychosis or it's the content of depression. So if someone is having trouble in their marriage, well, maybe it could be that the marriage has problems, but it also could be that the person is depressed and the marriage is being uh, affected by the depression. So you have to fix the biology and you, you're not really supposed to listen to the content. I mean, Kreplin actually even suggested that, that don't listen to the content, just watch the from the outside, as you would say. It's a very big leap to then say, no, wait a second, let's not accept that paradigm anymore. And let's say, well, what if the psychotic experience has some kind of intrinsic meaning, whether it's a spiritual meaning or a social meaning or a meaning in the family, uh, whether it's an expression of crisis, of d developmental crisis, that I don't know if I'm ready to become an adult, you know, that, those kind of cont uh, broader contextual frameworks, but that it has some kind of intrinsic meaning to it. It's not just a brain going awry. And you mentioned about the biology of the genetics. You know, the big hope is that we would find genes for each of these dis disorders. Every once in a while, one will be found, and then the next study says, no, oops, that wasn't... Uh, actually true, we should have found it by now. It's been, what, 20 years or something since the genome was sequenced. 
So let's let's talk more about you know the, this alternative vision. Okay, so if you if you if you're going to give up on the promise that biology was going to be the answer, and it seemed so evident, not just for psychosis, but even and not just for major mental illness, even for minor. I mean, the number of people taking antidepressants for anxiety or depression, I think it's something like one in five in the United States. It's an enormous number of people. And that's supposed to be the main answer. And you're saying, no, wait a minute. I'm saying, but many people are saying today, I'm certainly not alone. I mean, I'm part of a certain zeitgeist. I am, I'm aware of that, that we do have to be attentive to what is being expressed by people in these states. This is maybe most obvious or should be most obvious in the case of so-called hallucinations, which is itself a medical pathologizing term. I mean, hearing voices. I remember someone coming to me in preparation for the final exam for psychiatric accreditation, where in, in our country, it's a very tense time. You have to interview an actual person uh, uh, with lived experience, with with things going on uh, at the time of the interview, and you try to understand him, make a connection and diagnose him. And, and I remember how in this interview, so he asked the person, in the course of the interview, he knows the psychiatrist, he has to ask these psychiatric questions. So at some point he asked him, so tell me, do you hear voices? The person says, yes, I do. Ah, okay. Are you hearing voices now? Yes, I am. Ah, okay. Now, most psychiatrists would stop at this point. He went one step further and said, and he actually asked, and what are these voices saying? He said, oh, the voices are saying I should stop talking to you now. He says, oh, that's interesting. How's your appetite? How do you sleep at night? Like, like there was no... And when afterwards I, I remarked on this, he said, Oh, you, you listen to the voices? What is that, psychodynamic? Like, it, it just seems so strange. This is a, a, an intelligent fellow. He, he passed the accreditation exam. I, I sometimes actually refer to him because I think he's a great guy and a good psychiatrist. But, but he, he, And he came from a leading academic center. But this was the idea because, let's face it, the content of what the person is hearing will have zero effect whether you decide to give risperidone or risperidone or, or perfenazine or olanzapine or catiapine, it makes absolutely no difference. So why bother asking? So the idea is that maybe we do need to, to listen. Now, to listen means to seek meaning in what a person is saying. I mean, psychiatrists always listen. That's something very basic. But... Uh, the question is how you listen. So R.D. Lang says this reduction to the, the, the divided self. There are different ways of listening to people. I mean, I'm talking now, and you could listen to me as you think about what areas of my verbal cor cortex are currently active. Or you could listen to try to think what are the speech patterns, are they coherent, Am I a bit tangential? I actually think I am uh, too often. Or you could listen and, and try to understand what I'm saying, which is such a basic element of human connection everywhere. Someone talks to you to try to understand what he's saying. And, and trying to understand what you're experiencing. What do you experience? The only people who, who have somewhere forfeited this right to be understood are people who are diagnosed with mental disorders. And they don't have to be understood. They just have to be 
diagnosed in terms of their speech patterns and the level of their dopaminergic activity. I think a psychiatrist should be aware of all of these aspects. I'm not anti-psychiatric in the sense that I think that there's no place for medication. I, I'm very critical of the way medication is used, but I, I, I'm not anti-psychiatry. But that is not the end all and be all of what we're trying to do as psychiatrists, trying to understand people who have a certain perspective on the world and this perspective may cause them occasionally great anguish, great sorrow, or occasionally it might cause them such anguish to the people around them and we're trying to help them lead a better, more satisfying life. This is what we're trying to do and the first thing that that requires is to listen to them, to try to understand what they're trying to say and not to just dismiss it as some kind of cerebral excrescence of no significance. You know, it seems to me that, you know, the, the evidence for the um, biological optimism was not all there. And the evidence against it is also not there. <laughs> you know, so what we're left with is, I think, a competing set of values. And which values do you think are more humanizing and more helpful? There are two aspects here. One aspect is the moral aspect of, of, of what is the right way to approach another human being, regardless of diagnosis. Then there is a more scientific, empirical question which can and should be studied, which we are studying about, what, which, which asks what is the most successful, efficient, helpful way to help somebody who is in trouble uh, and who seeks help. And these are two separate questions. I have no trouble arguing that if instead of putting a person in a sterile, uh, alienated environment, institutional environment, you put them into a home, in a, a, a just a regular place where instead of being surrounded by caretakers, he is surrounded by other people who talk to him, listen to him, engage with him, support him, and are not judgmental about him, I have no doubt that that, is, uh, that the latter option is morally superior. So um, you, you may want to you know, mention a little bit about the founder of the Soteria approach, uh, Lauren Mosier. You, you mentioned about R.D. Lang, who was, came even before, and I know Lauren Mosier was influenced by him. I, you were thinking about all these things for quite a long time before implementing it. Yes, it took me about 12 years from first draft of the plan that I wrote till we actually opened up our first home. It took uh, 12 years. First of all, I want to comment on what you said about being different from mainstream psychiatry. If there's anything which gets me upset, it's when people say I'm not part of the mainstream. I, the mainstream is, is a large tent which can hold a lot of ideas, and uh, it's very important for me. And, here where I work, uh, that people understand what I'm doing is not antithetical to the mainstream, but when, but for people to think about what they're doing, it is quite compatible. And uh, I, I, I refuse to have people put me in some kind of a uh, of, of, of fringe because, because I don't think that we are. And it's been very important, very important goal of our work from the beginning has been to become a part of the mainstream and to influence it from within. Well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to interview you in particular in Jerusalem, uh, because it sounds like 
I'm not sure if you get all the credit for this, but that you are helping to change the mainstream view so that the soteria approach or the, you know, having a home-like environment for getting through psychosis has gotten the, the blessing of the psychiatric establishment in Israel, where it's on its way to, which is very, very different from how it is here in the United States. So, you know, Israel may be the first country that's actually changing the paradigm. I think we're making great strides, uh, sort of starting at the end of it before I describe what Sotaria exactly is. Uh, the, uh, we have set up three homes. I don't think there is a, another country in the world which has three Sotaria homes. The United States has a Sotaria department in Vermont, if I'm not mistaken. Wonderful, great work. We have three homes, but more importantly than that, we started our first home September 1st, 2016. We started 9 a.m. I count the hours since then in celebration. And uh, after the 12 years it took to set it up. And uh, within a year, which is breakneck speed in the bureaucratic standards, the Ministry of Health, led by Dr. Talbergman in this country, uh, approved the model uh, so that we went from being underground uh, which is what got me fired from my hospital, uh, justifiably, I suppose, to a regulated, legitimate, more and more publicly funded part of the mental health care delivery system in this country. There are now eight homes. They don't call themselves Soteria, and they're not, strictly speaking, Soteria. And each of these houses has a certain uh, different emphases, different ways of doing things, but basically they're all much more like Solteria than they are like the hospital departments, which they are trying to replace. And this is just the beginning. Um, we think that there is room for many, many dozens, uh, perhaps 130 such homes in the country. And uh, we're, we're getting a lot of cooperation from a lot of people. Which, which is wonderful. Now, the idea of Soteria, now I'm going to go a little bit backwards to explain what we're talking about over here. The basic idea of Soteria, as I understand it, is, is really a very simple idea that even extreme mental, emotional, cognitive states, uh, crises, uh, things which are sometimes called psychosis or manic excitement or suicidal depression, and so, these are human experiences which require humane responses. That is to say, we, without for a moment denying substrate of brain for all subjective experiences, what we are dealing with over here is the subjectivity of a person who needs to be treated as a person. The brain is always there. The brain is active now as I talk, as you listen, if you are, but Still, you're not trying to understand me on the level of my brain. You're trying to understand me on the level of a person who's trying to get an idea across. And this is the way we believe that all people with any sort of extreme mental state still need to be addressed and respected. Now, everything else that we do sort of derives from this basic idea. So uh, it means that instead of an institution, you have a home instead of some sort of, of, of hierarchy where I'm the doctor, I'm the expert, and uh, what I think counts more than what you do, because you are just a, a patient, it means 
I bring something to the encounter, you bring something to the encounter, and we try to work it out together out of a place, out of position of mutual respect. It means that uh, medication might be used to help symptomatically, but it's certainly not first line, and where, where possible, it's not maintained. And these are the sorts of things which we do as we see a person within the context of his own life. So th there are many labels for approaches to treatment which are actually attempts to repair certain wrongs within the field, such as shared decision-making or person-oriented treatment or patient-oriented treatment. You don't use these phrases with us because they are inevitably, without thinking, a part of what we do. How can a decision not be shared if you respect the person you're working with and you're listening to what his needs are? How can the person not be at the center of what's happening if obviously uh, what's important over here is the person as a person and not as a, a neurophysiological glitch uh, who is talking to you? That, that is the primary uh, moral directive, which, which, which is at the center of our work. So we have a home over here where people are surrounded by people who listen to them. We, we don't speak about counselors or therapists. The main, the center of the work is done by companions. The companions are people who are not professionals. Uh, they don't have degrees, though many of them are students learning to be mental health care professionals and they get good experience with us. We also have a lot of people with lived experience, not because we're looking for it, but because they naturally tend to rotate to, to this kind of work. And uh, in most job interviews, let's face it, if you tell somebody, listen, I was hospitalized, they look askance at that. If you tell that to us, we say, oh, wonderful. And if someone else uh, doesn't have that, well, maybe we'll take him anyway. So the, the whole way in which we try to help people, the whole environment within which we put people is very different from where they would be if they had to go into a hospital. We also try to work a lot with families. This is different from the original sort area where there was a sense that the person got into trouble because of the family. And R.D. Lang, who we mentioned earlier, was one of the spiritual forefathers of this sort of uh, approach, did a lot of work on pathological communication within families, and the people who came to the original soterias were, usually did so without involvement of the family, and we try to bring in the family as much as possible. We try every week to have a meeting with the support system, in the spirit of open dialogue. The original soteria was set up by Lauren Mosher, in the 1970s in San Jose, in California. It had American government funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, where Lauren Marshall was in charge of the schizophrenia desk, so-called. And for 12 years, this house operated, actually two houses, and he was able to do a randomized study where people would come in for an average of about six months the first six weeks, they were not allowed to get medication. Masha had something he was trying to prove, that without medication, you can still get in touch with these people, understand them, help them go through certain processes, which we miss if we just sedate them with a psychotropic medication. That was a very important point 
to make. And he had very interesting results, very encouraging results uh, in the research that he did, where the advantage was not so much at the time that they stayed there. You could have less symptoms uh, if you go into a hospital or if you go into a slow area. But what he did shows that if you look two years down the line where people have not been subjected to what happens in a psychiatric ward, there was better psychosocial acclimation, which is they, they did a better, uh, they had better results in terms of returning to their life path, uh, which was a very important finding. It needs to be replicated, and this is uh, not easy research uh, to be doing. Yeah, if I, if I could just uh, emphasize a little bit here, so he he was the head of the first head of research for uh, schizophrenia for NIMH. So he had you know top top credentials. And he knew exactly how to do the best quality research. So he did random assignment. I mean, it wasn't perfect random assignment, but it was pretty close. And using random assignment, he saw that the outcomes, he showed that the outcomes were better, as you, as you say, especially the two-year follow-up, uh, you know, in terms of employment, uh, relationships, uh, overall uh, satisfaction with life. And, you know, speaking about the psychiatric establishment, I mean, he was the psychiatric establishment when he started. But when he finished his project, he, he, his work was written out of the history of psychiatry. It's not in any, uh, as far as I know, history of psychiatric research textbooks. It was not welcome because, at least in this country, research and uh, the, the psychiatric paradigm is determined largely by the drug companies who fund so much of the research and, in fact, fund a tremendous amount of the papers in fact they even ghost write a lot of the papers i think something like 50 percent are ghost written and then they find they pay a psychiatrist to put their name on it and i would imagine that israel being so much of a smaller place uh, it's maybe less beholden to very very powerful economic forces just speculating but i, I hope so <laughs> you know that, that, that it gives a chance to to try this out without it being uh kind of squashed and, and he stopped because he ran out of money why did he run out of money? Because he wasn't able to get the the blessing of enough of the uh, governmental and other sources of, of funding. It's, it's an interesting question of why Lauren Mosher's Soteria did not spawn many more Soterias if he had such good results. Uh, I think the main reason is, I mentioned earlier the word zeitgeist, a period of the times which I was a part of. I mean, I, I, I know when I started in psychiatry, if someone bothered to tell me about him, I would have said, oh, come on, give me a break. I can give this guy five milligrams of haloperidol. What are you telling me all of these tales about these amazing houses? And because it was a time when we really thought that we were making great progress over here. And, and, and you know, I, I can be critical, but but I'm, I'm saying very honestly that I was very much a part of this movement. And, and I understand, and I understand that it is very, very difficult to treat people in ongoing distress. It's just not to make it worse is an accomplishment. And biological psychiatry really started with the hope that we would be able to do wonderful things. And 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 I understand that in the end, many people coming out of Soteria did get medication. It was, as I said, it was forbidden for the first six weeks, but some, the there was six months, a fair number did get medication, much less than in a hospital. So with time, uh, the point of what, uh, what can be done with medication has been made, but not enough 
appreciations are given to the limitations of what medication can provide, both when given long-term, and there are serious questions about whether to give long-term. And uh, you also mentioned the issue of the involvement of drug companies, and that's, that's not a happy chapter in psychiatry in terms of the medical industrial complex. Fact is that, uh, you know, uh, had I set up a uh, drug research center instead of a soteria home, uh, I would uh, probably have more to show for that in the bank. Um, and there is the issue of how uh, the drug companies uh, manage to maximize profits by creating a certain mindset which has become uh, the, the conventional way of seeing things. In our very language, the, very, the word of antipsychotic, call the medications we use antipsychotic, is in itself a marketing coup. When these medications were first used, it was understood that they cause indifference, apathy, and, and some psychiatrists were understandably very happy, as I would have been in the 1950s, when I finally managed to get someone who was in terrible situation for years, I get to calm him down. That's great, but it causes a, a, a certain apathy, which people don't like. I, I've never had the courage to actually swallow five milligrams of haloperidol or any other of, uh, of these medications. Colleagues who have been braver than I have described a certain sense of them not being able to experience things living through some kind of fog. One of my teachers, Chaim Bellmaker, wrote an article about this, of how he couldn't work for two days after taking one pill, he and a colleague of his. But to call it, but that is a neuroleptic, that sort of uh, sometimes was called a chemical restraint. Well, any chemical restraints, we have to think about that. But if you call antipsychotic, well, anybody can understand that if you're psychotic, you're an antipsychotic, and if you're not giving them an antipsychotic, then you're probably not making sense and you're risking malpractice. Let me just mention that, uh, you know, the, when a person is in a psychotic episode, if I can call it an episode, I mean, it's very frightening. Uh, and it's very frightening for the person or can be, they may not be aware of it. If, if it's a mania, maybe they won't be aware of how frightened they are, but it's certainly very frightening for the family uh, and for, for the general public. And so th it's understandable that there'd be a, an impulse to try to squelch that state of mind because of the behavior that arises from it. And so the image I have of, of asylums before medications ever existed is that there were really uh, places of tremendous chaos. I mean, the word bedlam, Bedlam was actually the name of a, of a psychiatric hospital, I think, in London. And that word has become, <laughs> you know, the, a synonym for total frightening chaos, you know, just out of control. And so suddenly you have this, these medications that bring people under control. Uh, yes, for which the medications uh, came to offer uh, a, a solution. But the question then became how much of the bedlam, in the adjectival sense, is being created by the sorts of institutions which are holding these people. How much are you preventing that by providing them with, a, with an environment where people can express the sorts of things that they're feeling, the sorts of things they're experiencing? It's not always easy. It can sometimes spin out of control. I'm for a moment claiming 
that I've found a solution to these extreme experiences. But uh, we're trying, and sometimes it can make a very big difference. Before we go any further, I, I just was wondering if you could give some sense of how you were able to obtain the blessing and funding of the establishment or of the um, healthcare system in Israel. I understand that it's, it's similar to four HMOs that are government funded. And you were able to get funding through the, through the state insurance? Yes. I mean, we started the first year, we were mainly funded by philanthropy. Uh, the second year, we were already mainly funded by out-of-pocket payments. Now, the way public healthcare works in this country is that Every citizen entitled to full uh, medical care insurance, as in every civilized country in the world. Oh, I'm sorry, that might not be true in the United States, excuse me. The way it's organized is through four kupot These are sorts of HMOs, which are semi-government, semi-private. Uh, there is a competition between them, and every citizen can choose to which of these four he belongs. And they are responsible for all medical care. Until 2015, they were not responsible for psychiatric care. There was a big reform since 2015. They're also responsible for mental health care. And they have come on board so that by now, uh, most of the people who come in to get help with us uh, are, are publicly funded. Some still have to pay out of pocket. But as I mentioned, there are now many houses which are operating, over 10, and all of them, almost all of them, work with some of the HMOs. And it's just a matter of time, as I see it, till all of the houses will work with all of the HMOs. And this will be just as hospitalization is, psychiatric, medical, any kind, will be completely publicly funded. That is what we are striving for. And I imagine that you were able to do this because you could show that the cost would, if anything, would be less than hospitalization. Part of it is that we charge slightly less than a hospital. We also claim, and we have some initial evidence to show that we reduce the need for hospitalization, so we might have a savings there. But, you know, I, I, I don't think ultimately that this is as much a matter of showing the results, which we are working very hard to do with, with research, retrospective and prospective research, it is also a matter of what the public wants. Um, many people who, one of their loved ones has to go into some place where he will have around-the-clock care, and they would rather do it in a, one of these homes that you've been set up, not an institution. And I think it's, it's the public desire to have this service developed and expanded which has been a driving force. Uh, the fact that I'm a psychiatrist and I was in charge of a department and I have a clinical associate professorship at Hebrew University also means that I'm coming from the mainstream and I'm not willing to give up on that because this is more and more a mainstream service being provided in this country, which I hope will also become part of the service in many other countries. So it sounds like the the family recognizes how much uh, of a kinder, gentler option it is compared to hospitalization. And, and so they've had some impact on, I guess, weighing in with the 
Kupat Cholim, the um, HMOs, they've had some some voice. They haven't, and the HMOs understand that this is a service which is worth investing in. There have been some attempts, even though all the funding comes from the HMOs, the HMOs ultimately get their funding from the government, and the, and again, the Ministry of Health has tried to be helpful over here, even though they are not technically the ones who pay for the service, but they've tried to encourage it. I've really been pleased with the cooperation that we've had from the HMOs. As always, as always between the, the funder and the provider, there are these little points of friction, but, but really wonderful how, how I feel that they're with us working together to make this to make the service more and more available to more and more people in the country. Now, one question I have is, I know that the Soteria Israel is a much shorter term model than the original Soteria or the Soteria Vermont or another Soteria in uh, Alaska that uh, has since uh, ceased to, to operate. But all of those, the ones in the United States were several months, uh, I think six months average stay. Whereas I, I know that the one in Israel or the ones in Israel are more like several weeks. So it's more of a stabilization situation. In fact, that's what they're called in Hebrew, stabilizing houses, I understand. And that's the translation. The, the technical term used in Israel is a balancing home. And that's what uh, the Ministry of Health calls all of these types of houses. Uh, not, not that felicitous a term. Uh, sometimes you call it start homes. The Israeli model is shorter term. I imagine that has to do with funding probably. But th there's implications, I think, also for what the goals are and how lofty or ambitious the goals are. The, I think the original soteria, I think the uh, assumption was that the person going through psychosis, which typically was a young person, late teens, early 20s, and going through a developmental crisis. I know that Voice Hendricks, who was the uh, house director for many years, he characterized it that way. And it makes, sort of makes sense that that would be a kind of critical time for crises is when a person is trying to launch into adulthood and whether, uh, for whatever reason, it's too uh, overwhelming a, a prospect. And so one way to avoid whatever, not avoid, but express the, that crisis is potentially through psychosis. And it would take several months to get through that. And the way to get through that in this original Soteria model is that Soteria provided a, a kind of a optimal environment for making connections, that the residents made connections with the staff and with other residents. And it wasn't just while they were there, but it in fact it endured so that they could even come back to visit. It made the post-childhood phase bearable that suddenly, instead of it being this overwhelming disconnected prospect, they could launch into a, a world where they have these wonderful, deeply caring connections. And, but the one in Israel is only several weeks long, so that it can't be quite that ambitious. On the other hand, I know that Israeli culture is much more t tightly knit and um, the, the level of overt caring of, of, for one another, I think is more felt in Israel than it is in most places in the United States. So I'm wondering if that's one reason why it's not as necessary, but I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. The average stay in our solitary homes in 2020 was 35 days. Even before we thought about our first home, uh, when we set a goal of having, uh, of being able to provide a mainstream service, we realized that it's going to be significantly more expensive meaning a significantly longer stay than in a hospital, nobody's going to look at us. 
and this was necessary for us to uh, make our peace with if we didn't want to just remain one underground uh, home but to but to become a viable alternative now the people who come to us are, are as in a hospital 50 to 60 percent do have diagnoses of being in some sort of psychotic state and we also have people with complex post-trauma we have uh, bipolar and, uh, and, and depressed people uh, and so it's not just psychosis as opposed to our it's for anybody requiring hospitalization and not needing the backup of the general hospital or not being actively intoxicated by recreational drugs uh, they, they, they can come in and so we do the work as best we can in this time and sometimes we'd like it to be longer we have started setting up long overdue uh, some sort of aftercare service uh, where people can uh, do art therapy together can have weekly meetings of, of a support group of people who've also finished at one of the soteria homes or even have come from the community and uh, we try to offer something which can continue the strong sense of community which people benefit from while staying at Soteria so that they can so that they can continue with that after they finish Soteria. There's still so much more to be done because even if someone can have a wonderful time at Soteria, the 35 days is just a brief period which passes and the person continues to deal with all sorts of issues in order to uh, try to attain a greater recovery in, in his life. So uh, I, I sometimes I wish we could have people for a longer time, but we're finding the ways to uh, help them afterwards. It needs to be developed much more. So in other words, the follow-up, and the follow-up would maybe be done by the same organization or maybe not. I mean, but there needs to be something, some way of helping the person reintegrate back home or wherever they're going to go and, and to, to feel um, more secure in whatever path they're going to take from there. We are well integrated with the Israeli Re Psychiatric Rehabilitation Services and we have partnership with a lot of these groups. We're developing our own services in this area. Uh, but yes, there's much more that still needs to be done and uh, we're working on it avidly. And, and was that a, a, a kind of a deliberate decision then to make it uh, shorter or just just the fiscal reality was such that there really wasn't much chance of it being any longer? The decision to make the stay in Soteria homes briefer was developed from the need to be able to be a legitimate alternative within the system and not out of the system. Uh, so yes, there are the fiscal issues over here and we knew that we would not get public funding if we were significantly longer than, than what we are. Uh, it, it just would not happen. Right, so it's just being realistic. Yeah, one other question I had is uh, the idea of using non-professionals or pre-professionals as the house staff, that's really fascinating. And part of that is that it's less expensive, but another part of it is that that's typically gonna be younger people which again, you know, in terms of uh, the developmental crisis of leaving home, young people need other young people, you know, to integrate with, and so it it gives a kind of um, ideal opportunities to connect uh, with people. And, and if they're not clinicians, and they're, they're they're much closer to being peers than if they're or than the, if they're professionals. I'm wondering if you know if there's a actually theoretical reason why it's actually better. It's not just to save money. 
No, that's that's certainly not just to save money, uh, though it, it does, it does, and I wish that I could pay them what they deserve to get because uh, sometimes they get upset with me. Yeah, yeah, you say that we're the, 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 the heart, the beating heart of the clinical program of the treatment, so why don't you pay us like that instead of uh, some paltry wage? And of course, they are completely right. We have in the homes professional staff, but they are not the center the way that the companions are the center. The first responsibility of the professional staff is to accompany the companions, to be there for them, to make sure that they're strong enough to do the very intense work that they're doing, to support them, to to, to provide supervision, to have the ability to talk about what's happening. Uh, and sometimes uh, difficult things can happen. It is much harder when you have somebody who is in a very bad state and, and, and may be threatening and may have a tendency to becoming violent. It's much harder to try to establish a connection there than it is to inject him and sedate him and put him in isolation room. So the work is, is much harder than in the hospital. I, don't, I did not understand that until I left the hospital and set this up and found myself occasionally nostalgic for the good old days when you can send a, a well-built uh, orderly in order to uh, restore the peace. I don't have that option anymore. If it's similar to Soteria, uh, the original Soteria, or the other Soterias, the more recent ones in the United States, the it's not a, a nine to five shift. It's it's a, at least twenty four hour or forty eight hour shift because part of the issue is that the staff, especially for a new resident coming in, you may have to be up with them half or all the night. You know that's uh, you have to be with them, and and that's one concept which we didn't talk about yet. It's about being with as opposed to doing to as being one of the the main concepts. Of, uh, of what it's like uh, at, a, at a Soteria house. And to be with means if someone's in crisis, you have to be with them. I mean, it's similar to if you had a child in crisis, you wouldn't leave them. So no, I, I, I had enough of you, you know, just go to sleep. I don't care if you're in crisis. I mean, a good parent would not do that, you know, and it's uh, not, not that this is parenting, but it, there's something in common there, I think. Yes, it's truly a central theme of all Soteria homes is this idea of being with that which means to empathize, to listen, to be non-judgmental, to try to imaginatively insert yourself into that person's world outlook. And, and, and it's not easy to do it, and it's not easy to know how to do it without causing an unnecessary sort of reactions. It's very delicate work, and long kits are very helpful for this. On the one hand, though we started with 24-hour shifts, it became financially very hard for us to maintain, except for weekends, because of the increased cost of having people for all that time. On the other hand, I can tell you that uh, one of our homes, a men's home in Jerusalem, three times had to go into isolation because of uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, where some people were infected and everyone had to be in isolation. And it was an amazing, amazing experience because what we did is for about a week each of those three times, uh, among the staff which had to go into isolation, we got four companions who agreed to stay in the house for the whole week, not for a 12 or 24 hour shift, but to be there for a whole week and to split the shifts among themselves, along with the seven or eight or nine residents who also had to be in isolation and chose to do it with us. 
And during that week, none of the professional staff came into the house and maintained the Zoom contact and telephone contact. And at the end of the week, the, the staff was sometimes bordering on euphorics. We finally get to know the people. We finally have come together as a group. You know that guy who never left his room? He was in all the activities together with us. And this is wonderful. We finally know them. We have to go to these one-week shifts. No one really was willing to do that. But, but, but it, was, it was a very heady experience for, for many of, uh, of uh, the companions who went through this. Oh, yeah, that's what I would like to do. Uh, but uh, it's, it's just, again, there are financial limitations, unfortunately, yeah. So I have a, uh, I think this may be the last question, and and I don't know to what extent you thought about this, but I'm wondering if what your experience with Soteria and with this very, um, very different approach to dealing with uh, psychosis and helping people through it, how, if, if, if in any way, has this influenced the way you think about less extreme forms of emotional distress? depression, anxiety, uh, especially the uh, trauma. Do, do you feel that uh, the medicalization of those things also needs to be somehow uh, changed? It needs to be an alternative, more humanizing kind of approach? Uh, I, I definitely think so. When we get somebody with sort of a depressive or anxiety-based sort of problem, it's very hard when I hear someone saying, uh, uh, doctor, help me, I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. Or it's hard for me to hear the sense, I have depression. What do you have exactly? You, know, you might have some bacteria or you might have a, a, an occlusion of, of, a cardiac, of a coronary artery, but you don't have depression, you are depressed. And, and a very important part of what we do is to try to help people think differently about their suffering. And when Soteria works well, it doesn't matter if the person is very psychotic or is having a depression, a supposedly less uh, severe kind of emotional problem. We try to provide a, a safe space where the person surrounded by support, people who listen and care, is able to think about what is happening to him, not about what is this medication going to do to me, not about what is this thing called depression taken away from me, but what is he experiencing in his life? How might he have to renegotiate his approach to his own suffering, his approach to people around him with whom he may have difficulties? And there's a chance to rethink these things and come out thinking differently about it. And sometimes the, the most valuable thing that we can tell people is stop running away from your suffering because as long as you do that by not thinking about it, by taking medication, by doing all of these things, you may actually be preventing yourself from coming out on the other side in a better state. I think what you're saying is that uh, the, the per person who's suffering needs to own their suffering as part of them. It's part of what they're going through. It's not some kind of a faulty brain circuit or something that ha is happening to them that's not them, that it's part of them. And there needs to be a, a, a new way of, of integrating that part of them so that it, the, the suffering can be reduced. But it's not by disowning it. Correct. Uh, whenever I say that, I say it 
almost apologetically or, or modestly, like it's very easy for me to tell somebody, please suffer and it'll be okay. You know, he's suffering, not I am. So I really say that with with hesitation, with respect, understanding how the person got into the situation because there, he has very serious problems, and it's not it's not easy to find your way out of that. But that is if. You asked me what I learned from trying to help people with psychosis for other states. I think this is it, to, to, to see what's happening, not to resist it. And in that way, you may actually be able to reach a new sort of modus vivendi with, uh, with your difficulties. So this is a wonderful place to, to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Pesach Lichtenberg, the founder and professional director of Soteria Israel a nonprofit organization that provides a home-like alternative to psychiatric hospitalization for recovery from acute psychosis. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.